In this episode, Jerry Chen sits down with Amazon Web Services Vice President of Worldwide Commercial Sales, Mike Clayville, to talk about sales strategy, how Mike spots industry trends, and AWS. This fireside chat was recorded at Grayscale, an event hosted by Greylock Partners. For more podcasts, please visit news.greylock.com. I want to invite Mike Clayville up on stage. We're going to do a fireside chat for the next half hour, then 10 minutes of questions. So by introduction, Mike Clayville is the VP of commercial sales for Amazon Web Services. So Mike runs an entire go-to-market field for the non-government business on Amazon's cloud, That's right? That's right. I'll embarrass Mike a little bit. So Mike and I know each other. We worked together at VMware, and we talked about the, the whole theme today is this hyperscaling, blitzscaling. But uh, you've been at Amazon how long? So three years. Three years. So you've seen it go from what? Uh, it's like a $10 billion run right now. What was yep. when you started? Uh, I guess somewhere uh, north of $2 billion probably. So in three years, it's gone from a $2 billion run rate to a $10 billion run rate, yeah. 5x. So go, growing that fast at scale is kind of amazing. But you've, not the first time you've seen this rodeo, being, Mike being a, a professional cowboy on the side, uh, VMware, you were there for six years as well? Nine years. Can you believe it? Nine years. Nine years. And so you saw that grow from how many? So it went from, uh, I think it closed the previous year that I, before I got there on about $100 million to $5 billion. $5 billion. And before that, you were at a small company, BA Systems. BA that... Systems. And it had gone from zero to about a billion in six years. And before that, you were at Tivoli as part uh-huh. of IBM. Tivoli. And Div- Tivoli had gone from about $50 million to about a billion and a half. And then before that, a small company called Markham Systems in the yeah, mainframe space. And they'd gone from like zero to $300 million in just a couple of years. So Mike is either the luckiest guy on the planet. <laughs> but or, I started or, at IBM, so I didn't, I wasn't, I, it's not like I chose everyone, right? I chose IBM when it was the most profitable company sure. in the history, and I watched it go just yeah, Todd, yeah, to the yeah. least profitable company in history oh, in just a few years. There's, there's probably some learning in that, but um, what VCs like to say are like things like the IBM versus other ones, there's many ways to screw up a company. There's only a handful of ways to do it right. Yeah. And so, so the thing about investing, the thing about doing startups, like you got to figure what are the two or three um, fact patterns to do it right. So the first question I want to talk to you, there's a whole bunch of stuff I want to ask you about on Amazon is what do these companies do right? What do you look for when you join these companies? Was there like, they all had a blue logo. I mean, what was it about the <laughs> culture, the product that said, or the market said like, okay, Markham, Tivoli, BEA, VMware, AWS. Yeah, so the first thing I think that I do, the first, I guess there's one characteristic that's, I think, really important, and that is you have to be curious. Okay. So I'm always asking customers about what's interesting, what's new, what do you think about this, what do you think about that? And in almost every case, I found customers making a movement to those platforms mm. early. And I found that early, and I can, I can tell you about Clyde, who told me about Markham. I can tell you about Dan, who told me about AW. And, and these guys, you know, the senior executives, yeah. uh, you know, I, my speciality is enterprise, senior executives that I am constantly uh, querying to see what's the next interesting thing. And so if you're always asking questions, you'll end up hearing 
the darndest answers. Did you notice, we always think about early adopter verticals, right, and, or size, and did you find like these customers you talked to cluster around a vertical, like tech, financial, financial services, retail, did they cluster around size of customer, so big, I, small? So I look for use case. Okay. Um, because um, what I'm looking for is an inefficiency in the market. Yeah. And, and so I, I talk to a lot of customers uh, every day, and they tell me a lot of interesting things. But there are only a few things that you come across from time to time that you go, oh, that's it. Yeah. Right? And so constantly being curious is critical. But then looking for the use cases. And I like use cases that can emerge into a platform. And I use as a kind of a, a definition that I use is that they don't have a Gartner Quadrant yet. <laughs> okay. Right? If they've got a Gartner Quadrant, it's too late. Yeah, you're, you've been defined by somebody else. Correct. Yeah. And so you look for something that hasn't been contextualized by the market, and then you look for a significant pain point, right? Yeah. VMware is like falling off a log to see that one because the average utilization of an x86 server was 3 to 5%. Yeah. And you know, virtualization had been around for decades. Yeah. I sold it on mainframes back in the mid-80s. And so putting those two together was an easy connect once you found the technology, right? And so it's, it's those kind of connections that you look, look for that huge inefficiency in the marketplace. It, it goes to show that, um, I remember the early days of VMware, we had these issues with Microsoft and Oracle supporting their products on a different platform. And, you know, AWS had the same early. But your point about inefficiencies, if you create economic value for your buyer, and right. VMware was like 10 to 1 server consolidation, right. Amazon was so much of a, of a cost saving for everybody out there. If you create economic value for your customers, you can't stop it, right? You can't stop and it's, it. And it's, I always say drivers and drags. There's reasons to use the product, drivers. The drags, reasons not to use the product. But if your drivers outweigh the drags, then yeah. you, you have something inside the tornado. Now, if you look at um, you know, cloud, virtualization, app servers, you know, management products, once you're inside these companies, Mike, because you've been in this um, rodeo four or five times, what's similar across these companies? So every company is exactly the same on the inside. Exactly the same. I call it the tornado. And they're all, it, from, from the type of people yeah. that you find you're working with, their motivation, the types of customers that you have, there's a journey for customers in every major technology cycle. I've been able to map uh, a journey. I've written a white paper on how customer goes through exactly the same journey in every new technology innovation um, there's an adoption cycle and it mm. starts in a certain place then it moves to the next place and it's all super consistent in almost every one of these, these major technology Yeah, it's the, the people thing's interesting. I think you said this to me. The employees that get attracted to these tornadoes, they're in this like blitz scaling or, or hyperscaling phase are all similar DNA. Mm. And oftentimes um, I characterize them like you have um, it's like barbarians versus like, you know, villagers, right? Yeah. And the people that are in these companies in this hyperscale, they're quite frankly, they're, they're barbarians, no offense to barbarians, because like they don't play by the rules. Yeah. They're, they're aggressive and they get shit done by sheer force of will. But they're, they're motivated differently. Correct. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, it's religion. Yeah. They're not here for a job. They're not here to, you know, make a, a dollar or two. They're here to change the world. Yeah. And you can see, and the reason, I mean, when I leave companies, it's when the religion leaves. When mm -hmm. I, I sense the religion leaving, it's like, it's time to go someplace else. Because where you want to be is around uh, a whole group of people that fundamentally are changing the world. 
And they, they strongly believe that. Yeah. And they're going to drive towards that. Right? They're not going to let the, you know, the, the naysayers get in their way. They're not going to be dissuaded by all of the no's. Because what they've got is something that's going to be hugely impactful to the marketplace. And they're going to go out and, and prove to the marketplace they're right. So um, maybe I want to go back to that and talk about kind of the experience you're having now and uh, being inside the tornado that is Amazon. And this is an enterprise um, audience. So we're all keenly aware of Amazon as a friend and a foe and as a, as a partner. But before we get there, I want to talk to some mechanics in around building teams, building um, go-to-market, building channels, because we have a bunch of founders in, in the audience and you've done this several times. So maybe let's talk about First, kind of the go-to-market, and then I'd love to talk about how you hire your team. Yeah. When you started at Amazon, we started VMware, we started BA, the average deal sizes were small, I remember. Yeah. You know, we, well, we're... I noticed that I was in his dead zone <laughs> in almost every one of my tornadoes. But the interesting thing about the dead zone, super important, is that uh, like at, uh, at BEA Systems, 90%, 95% of the revenue started as a download, yeah. self-service. Now, the average deal size was around 7K, but it was self-service. So it was really hugging yep. very tightly on the self-service. It was more highly indexed on self-service than lowly indexed on, on revenue yep. on the direct sell side. And you'll find that the development community is most attracted first to these really interesting new technologies, right? And, and whether, uh, you know, whether it was... Uh, you know, BEA or VMware or AWS, the development community immediately saw how empowering this technology yeah. was, and they flocked to it. And the development community doesn't need to be handheld, sure. right? Just you're talking a, to the audience developers, so yeah, so you're playing. You know, <laughs> let me see the technology, then get out of my way yeah. and let me, let me uh, leverage it, yeah. right? And so what you find in these cycles is that. Um, you want to play in a community where the developers can get access to the technology in a way that is very self-service and then can create something super interesting off of that, something that's business value, and then from there launch into you know, greater use cases and the likes. How do you walk that journey? So we talked about you start in the dead zone. You're selling seven thousand dollar you know deal sizes. At early days, VMware was like five or ten. God bless it. Was it. Exact same. Fit, fit, it was a, ten thousand. Twenty thousand is a big deal for us back then. How do you huge. how do you scale them up? Is I it, remember the fifth, first fifty thousand dollar deal. Uh, champagne I, bottles were being popped. High five! Look at that! Wow! Yeah. So how did you scale the fifty thousand dollar deals, ten thousand dollar deals to? Quite frankly, we're, you're doing so 10, hit, 20, 15 so, million dollar deals. So this is, this is a really important characteristic of new technology adoption. What you need to do is you need to start a lot of fires. Okay. So those you know, seven to $10,000 deals are projects. That's what they are, it's projects. You know, you got a developer that's got something interesting that he wants to, or she wants to deliver. They start a project and they spend that much money. And then what you want to do is get as many of those projects started as you can. And how you get the big deals is you begin to aggregate projects into more bigger and bigger, more sophisticated deployments. And so in every single case, the way it all started was lighting up as many projects as you can in as many accounts as you can. And then everything else takes care of itself. How do you 
manage that as executive? How do you put? How do you create a system to encourage many fires? How do you track it? How do you nurture it? Because it's one thing to say it, but practically, well, it, so you, this is the most important discipline in your go-to-market. And by the way, I strongly believe that you have to make intentional choices, not accidental choices. Yeah. And one of the most important things you can do is intentionally choose so that you can iterate on that choice. Well, so the core part of the go-to-market is in the selling motion. Okay. And the selling motion has to be super consistent. Super consistent. You can't iterate on your selling motion if everybody's doing something different. Now, define that because that's both, um, you can say it's a use case. It's, it's a per- yes. persona you're talking so I'm, to. So what I'm going to do is what I'm going to come at it from a business process. Okay. So inside of your company, your go-to-market is made up of a series of sales teams or partner sales teams. And they're, they're doing two things. They're either prospecting or they're selling. And oftentimes the sales teams mix those two up. Okay. They start prospecting when they should be selling or they start selling when they should be prospecting and they're very different things. And so the first thing you have to do is line up the notion of prospecting, what prospecting means. Each of these two processes can be broke down in this series of steps. And there are five steps to the prospecting okay. cycle and there's about six steps so you cycle. can break those out much further, more, more fine-grained if you want in the selling cycle. Oh. And so you got to make sure that you spend enough time prospecting and enough time selling. It's the balance of the two that lights all the fires. Okay. You over-index on one or the other, you're not going to deliver on your, your business. Is there a rule of thumb on how you guide the split between prospecting versus selling? It varies by customer, by market? So it, it depends on – the first thing you have to do is early in the early stages, yeah. you've got to settle in – a standard process, okay. right? You get your first five customers. In those first five customers, you get to sort through how you went about creating, identifying those customers, prospecting, and then how do you went about defending your value selling, right? And so, you know, the prospecting cycle starts with who do I target? What company? What person in the company do I target? Right? How do I get access to them? Right? How, when I pick up the phone... Will they pick up the phone? When I send them an email, will they send me an email back, right? And there's, there's a whole methodology around uh, what I call making contact. And then once you make contact, the next thing you have to do is you have to earn the right to have a meaningful dialogue, right? You got 30 seconds to three minutes when you make contact to defend your value, to earn the right to have that meaningful dialogue, and then in that meaningful dialogue, you got 30 minutes to prove that they need to make a big investment in this technology. And that's all in the prospecting cycle. Mm-hmm. You haven't even started to sell yet, mm-hmm. right? And so having that super consistent is critical because your sales force is just like a manufacturing plant. Sure. You have a certain amount of capacity and you have a certain amount of yield. And you have to manage both, your capacity and your yield, right? And your yield goes up by consistent selling motions. And what is also happening in the marketplace is the marketplace is evolving. So you need to understand that there is this notion of the Darwinianism of sales. Yeah. If you're not evolving, other people are evolving past you in your selling motion, and you're not going to get the access that you need in those prospecting cycles if you aren't constantly evolving. And you 
can't evolve something that's not consistent. So you have to, in those first five customers you gather, then, then the next you know, 45 yeah, you sense. gather to hit that 50 customer mark, you have to really decide what is your prospecting motion that is the most efficient and what is the selling motion, and then you've got to standardize your teams on that. Are the teams, is, is prospecting historically was like, you know, inside sales reps or BDRs and then, you know. Everybody, or, or is it CEO all? CEO should be prospecting. So I tell everybody, look, prospecting is the calisthenics of sales. <laughs> it's how you stay in selling shape, right? And everybody should be prospecting. Everybody. Yeah, I was talking the to founders, the founder, yeah. The, I've found most founders are the best salespeople yeah. out there, yeah. right? The thing that people undervalue is, there are moments of truth in every day. And those moments of truth can be critical to your business. And that's when you step onto an elevator and you see that client. That's when you walk down the street and you run into And you've got 30 seconds to make that connection. Now, prospecting is it's a muscle memory sport. Right? It's a muscle memory sport. Yeah. And what... People make this mistake all the time, right? Um, they walk in and they say, I got to go call my best prospect today. I'm going to prioritize them first. And that's the absolute wrong thing to do. Your best prospect you should prioritize is last, dead last, because it's a muscle memory sport. If you're on your 10th call, you yeah. have practiced that pitch 10 times, and so your best pitch will be made to your best prospect. What you don't want is your worst pitch. You're, you know, you're still warming up to your best prospect, right? And yeah, so, yeah. you know, and you'll hit these moments of truth that if you're warmed up, or you're, you know, you've got your swing down, you're, you're ready to go, and you, that moment of truth hits, you're going to be in shape to take it. Because you're probably getting a bunch of objections early from other customers that you, you've nailed. You're probably having exactly. a similar conversations. It's kind of counterintuitive, too, that your, your best prospect is last, but it forces you to always fill the funnel. Because if you only yeah. go for the, 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 the good leads, or whatever, like Len Gurry would call it, right? You're ignoring the bad leads, which, quite frankly, it's like eating your veggies or doing your exercises. You're not widening the top of the funnel. So. Correct. In order to get to the, pros- the good leads, you've got to do the bad ones first. It's interesting because you never know when you find, find gems there. Yep. Maybe let's it's super fascinating on the, on the process. I want to go back to it, but you, you mentioned the right team in place. And, and a, a great question I want to now touch on is hiring people in this team. So if you've hired, I don't know, thousands of sales execs and fired them, maybe talk through the process of um, how to identify what does a great sales exec looks like. And... Um, how, when do you know when, is it, is it simple as missing the number, making the number? When do, you, when do you fire them? Yeah, so the first thing I would say is um, don't think about uh, your selling team as a bunch of individuals. Think about it as an organism. Your selling team is a group of people out to accomplish this specific mission. So the first thing you shouldn't be thinking is, gee, I wonder how many sales reps I need to hire. And that's where people go first. And that's wrong thinking. Yeah. What you need to be thinking is, what is the makeup of a team that can prove the value of my solution, right? And so I have a notion that I call a minimum deployable unit. What is the minimum deployable unit? And what is it made up of? So at VMware, my minimum deployable unit is I needed a channel person. 
because we were heavily channel focused. You needed a rep and you needed yeah. an SE. And so I would only think about adding resource in minimum deployable units. I, I still think that way yeah. today, right? Because if you add a rep, but you don't add the SE, then you're not going to be able to actually make the sell and adding the rep was a waste of resource, right? So you got to figure out what your minimum yeah. deployable unit is first and then think about adding resource based on number of minimum deployable units. And then within that minimum deployable unit, you have to decide what's the makeup and what's the, you know, not only the, the skill set, but the psychographics of that, mm-hmm. right? And so you may be looking for, you know, depending upon the cycle, I, I often use this analogy, you've got to recognize what you're trying to do on the field. Mm-hmm. There are people that can run the 40 and 4.3. Mm-hmm. And there are people that are 350 pounds. There's very few people that are 350 pounds and can run 4.3. And it's the same thing with selling. It's the exact same thing. It's a muscle memory sport. So you got to understand what it is you're trying to accomplish. Do you you want the guys that are going to block out on the field right now? Well, let's go hire, you know, the 350-pound guys. Or do you need the receivers that can get down the field in a hurry? Then let's go hire the 4.3 guys, right? And... You'll recognize that as you evolve your, your go-to-market that you're going to need to bring on different teams, and the makeup of that minimum deployable unit will shift over time. When you think about the team, the, 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 the big 350-pound lineman or, or the, the sprinter, a question we had this morning in hiring was domain experience versus functional experience, right, or experience. So if you're a security company, storage company, CRM company, those are different domains. And sometimes your boss is like, well, I need someone out of Salesforce. I need someone out of VMware. I need someone out of Oracle because I'm selling databases. When you hire reps or executives or SEs, how much does domain experience matter versus so, like this person so is I, the is the I got to tell you, I would hire Curry to do anything. <laughs> yeah, Steph Curry. I don't, probably, I don't, I'm not worried about domain experience because yeah, I yeah, guarantee you yeah. that if I put him out on the football field, yeah. he'll do a heck of a job for me. Yeah. You know, if I give him a freaking battle, better hit that ball, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so you got to recognize that you're looking for raw talent, okay? Right? And um, even the really, I mean, there's a s- certain requirement uh, of your talent to be able to consume the technology that you're delivering, yep. right? So there's you got to make sure that the folks you're hiring are have the capacity to understand the value proposition, but you can train people on domain, but it's hard to train people to shoot a three-pointer like he shoots a three-pointer. Yeah. That stuff, some of that stuff just comes naturally. So I would always choose the athlete, you know, the, the person that's really technically competent or, or really uh, can simplify a conversation to have, you know, a, a yeah. really meaningful conversation to a customer over domain expertise. Even though the domain person might have a book of business or contacts in the field, you take the, the athlete with the personality first. I, I would. So there's a bump that yeah. you get, okay. but it's an unnatural bump yeah. associated with hiring a, they call it the golden Rolodex, but it's an unnatural bump. It's, you're relying on something that's not long-term sustainable yeah. because there's, there's a capacity to that Rolodex. It, and so it, no, exactly. it, it, you get that benefit of that yeah. and then it's over. It expires. But, There's expert right? data on so it. So what you really want yeah. is you want a really repeatable process that can get, you know, that these people can use to get 
customers engaged today, six months from today, 12 months from today, 24 months from today, because the biggest cost associated with Salesforce is a restart of that minimum deployable unit, right? It costs you time in market. It costs you a ramp up time for the new team that comes in. And so for me, I index high on what's their ability and index lower on the golden Rolodex, although I'll take a golden Rolodex all day long if it comes along with the ability. Things like golden LinkedIn account or something these days, but yeah. 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 So you you mentioned something that's interesting is is like the right aptitude at a field exec rep, either inside or whatever, can learn the domain, can learn how to sell the value, which is powerful. You've done this across multiple technical companies. How do you like to work with technical founders or the, the engineering the product side because we don't to make this kind of business side and technical side marriage work several times yeah. and in the audience we have mostly technical founders that come from the engineering background the product background and you know tv shows or movie aside there's the people think there's this divide between sales and, and and engineering what are some tips or suggestions how can technical founders work well with their sales organization well so the first thing i'd say recognize that the sales organization needs you for prospecting. Hmm. They need you for prospecting. They need you to be calling on customers that have never looked at the technology before. They'll learn a ton from that. And so I highly recommend you get involved in prospecting cycles with your teams. You know, let them cold call and you're there along having the conversation with a customer that had never heard of you before. Not the most comfortable thing to do, but hugely valuable. I'm, always been a strong believer in you know the minimum viable product yeah and then iterate quickly yeah and you have to have what i call a strong voice of the customer in that model and hearing directly from the customers and prospects super important the second thing is you know i I talked about there's five steps to the prospecting cycle and six steps to the sales cycle right so whether it's to be the qualification phase the sales reps get right but as you get into the technical validation phase of a sell cycle, you know, you should be deeply involved with the technical validation and know how customers are deciding whether this technology is relevant for their pain point. And there are various steps in the technical validation phase, everything from POCs, demos. There's a bunch of steps in that technical validation stage that you guys should own, understand, and constantly be getting feedback on. Yeah. We did a bunch of demos. None of them came across. Why didn't they come across? You know, are we off message or are we off product, right? There's a ton to learn in that part of the selling cycle, and I would highly recommend you be deeply involved with that. When you think about that, I mean, there's, it's hard to boil down um, uh, kind of best practices in a short fireside chat, but what mistakes or traps do you see? And like all throughout one is uh, selective hearing, right? It's a lot of founders, a lot of execs, the, the, you know. We call we, it happy years. Happy years, right? You know, I, I've done this mental, we're sitting in the same meeting with the same customer, same CIO. We come out with two different set of notes on priorities because you're listening for what you want to hear. Mm-hmm. I'd be curious, what other traps do you see when you're, when you're doing this prospecting? And do you have um, tricks or um, ways to kind of, neutralize those biases? Yeah, so the way I think about it, again, coming back to the manufacturing metaphor, it's your capacity, and you get to use your capacity in the most efficient way. And so, you know, the biggest challenge in, uh, or I'd consider a waste of capacity, is calling on people that aren't going to buy anything. Uh, And so I have a, a notion that I, you know, teach the team is, 
what you want to do is only sell to the people that are going to buy. I call it fish where the fish are. Yeah. Let's go fishing where there are fish. Let's don't fish where there aren't any fish, right? And so the qualification of the prospecting cycle is where people make the most mistakes. You waste the most, the, the largest waste of selling capacity is because we're not targeting the right people, the people that this solution really fits, right? We're targeting people that will answer the phone. We don't want to target people that answer the phone. We want to target people that will buy the product. You get adverse selection that way. You right. Know. And so highly targeted selling is core to protecting selling capacity. And then the second part of that is to be able to qualify whether or not the customer... So you, if you, you get the targeting right, which is what will protect the bulk of your capacity... We're only going to go call on people we know we're going to buy. And, and you do pattern matching to get to that, right? Okay. You got to get in that fi- first 50 customers, you'll do pattern matching and you'll recognize a series of patterns that you can you know, yeah. begin to target with. And then it's about how to defend the value. And so, you know, people aren't going to buy just because they like you, right? People aren't going to buy because they think it's cool technology, People are, you're going to build a business around are those people that are getting business value from your offering. And so what that means is you've got to recognize some critical, you call it, uh, I, I call it the headwinds, but you call it something else around, around the things that keep people from buying. Yeah, drags, you call it drivers drags, and drags. drags headwinds Everything and drags. has to have a framework for me, drivers and drags. Yeah, yeah so, um, so for me, I, I have this notion that I call selling triggers. And there are critical selling triggers in every sell cycle. For example, virtualization. The critical selling trigger for virtualization was server refresh. Why? Sure. Because somebody's not going to buy something new, put it on the floor if they can get rid of something. Yeah. Right? And nobody's going to write off that server. Uh, they're going to fully depreciate that server. Nobody's got extra expense sitting around on the balance sheet to just write a bunch of shit off. They're not going to do it, right? Yeah. So what you have to do is you got to recognize there's a selling trigger here. So in order for me to sell virtualization, I need to know the refresh rate yeah. and the refresh timing. And if I come in and I know that the, you know, the refresh for this set of servers is you know, uh, Q3 of 2017, two things I can do. First thing is... I can know that there are no fish in that pond right now. Quit fishing there, right? The second thing I know I can do is, you know, one quarter before, I can engage with a a good conversation about the value of getting rid of that server and not replacing, but but instead having a, a, a VMware solution in. And so that's the notion of triggers. And there's associated that with that is the notion of selling intersections. So you have a number of triggers, and triggers are server refresh, triggers are you know, migrating data, triggers are new security or compliance yeah. regimes. There's a bunch of triggers. And then selling intersections is when they have to be delivered. So you know, Q3 of 2017 is the selling intersection. And the two of those make up your ability to target and deliver a customer in the most efficient way possible. Interesting. 
Maybe I want to migrate the conversation to talk a little about AWS because sure. you have an audience that's uh, very curious about it. And talk a little about, about and that. And thank you all for uh, well, so our AWS customers. Raise your hand if you're on a Amazon or Amazon I'm, customer. I'm absolutely desi- delighted to have you guys as customers, so thank you very much. Raise your much. hand if you're using a different cloud beside Amazon. Maybe Can we talk a little later? Maybe in addition to, not exclusively, but there, there you go. Oh, well, yeah, there's, there's Matt, as you know. Um, uh, so... Amazon, in my mind, is, it's, I, I said this years ago, the, the, the biggest storage company started the past 10 years is S3, yeah. right? The largest server company the past five years is EC2, yeah. right? And, and quite frankly, now, the large security company started in the past few years is, is Amazon as well. And it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch kind of what's happened there. So first question to you is, um, are we looking at a world where there's like one or two clouds and that's it? Is it Amazon and uh, Microsoft and maybe Google? Do you think it's a winner-take-all market or do you think there's plenty of clouds for everybody? <laughs> well, it is a big market to yeah. be on. It's a huge market. This is a, probably a $4 trillion space. There's never been a market that is this horizontal, I think, in, in the history of IT. So yeah. this is a really, really big space. Very unique. And it's a, it's a unique time in history where... We're going through a technology transformation that is unprecedented. And I think it's the biggest one that we'll all see, and maybe even uh, our kids will ever see. It's such a big transition. So there'll be multiple players. There will be multiple players. I know that Gardner thinks that there's only going to end up with three. I mean, I saw them. They were at, uh, I had a CIO conference the other day, and they said, you know what, I think think this thing narrows down to about three. I, I don't know if that's true, but I do know that... The fundamental economics of cloud, all of the technology responds well to economies of scale. That's true. And I do know that if you're focused, like we are, on taking cost out, and that's a core component of Amazon, is we have what we call a virtuous cycle, which is aggregate volume, drive cost out, and relentlessly give that cost back to customers in the form of price reductions, right? We've reduced our price 50 times in the last six years Mm -hmm. with absolutely no competitive pressure to do so, Mm -hmm. virtually none. We're doing that because we recognize that that will drive more volume. And if we can drive more volume, we can drive more efficiency. And Jeff's always talked about this flywheel that you get set up. And so that's what drives us. We're building a long-term business here. We're building a business that we hope outlasts all of us. So, th- so yeah. driving that volume is going to be critical long term. So it's, it do that two ways. It's um, on the bottom end, you've dropped price like 50 times in the past couple of years, which has been great. And we're thankful for you. And as investors, you know, we're thankful for that cost reduction. At the same time, you've launched on a 400 new features or services. 722, 722 last year. 722, I, I last year alone, right? Yes. 516 the year before. 281 the year before that. So we're continuing to Pro- Always be prospecting. You know, exactly. there you go. And I think there's some probably good some features there for you if we can talk later. So if you, if, you think, if you think about that, what's the best way for companies? Let's say you're, if you're an app company building something, uh, Amazon, take advantage of, of the databases, Aurora, Redshift, et cetera. If you're selling some like monitoring security or storage, what's the best way to work with Amazon, right? Because yeah. from, from the outside, we're like, holy crap. Like, okay, I know Jerry, he can call Mike, but you know, I'm not going to call Mike for every little thing. What's the best yeah. way to work with you? I've got three programs that I've set up. I've got an ISV program yep. and I've got a, 
a team of hundreds that all they do is go out and work with ISVs. That's SaaS providers, people that have applications that they want to just deploy on AWS as a platform. And you can work with them to get into our partner program. And that'll give you a lot of interesting things. It, yeah. You can get access to uh, something that we call a test drive, which is allows your prospects to deploy your software on AWS and trial it and then decide if they like it or not. You can get access to a lot of things that can be uh, accelerants in that selling cycle, the third phase of that selling cycle. See, so you, you should do that. We also have a bunch of um, partners that are SIs yep. that are there to help deploy this technology into big enterprises and small enterprises, but enterprises in general. And so you can get connected in with the big SIs that are delivering solutions uh, out there on behalf of our customers. And then you can get help from our, what we call our solution architects, the guys that, whose job it is to have hands-on keyboards. So AWS has a different philosophy than any other IT company that I've ever worked for in that we hire really technically competent solution architects. Yeah. Instead of, say, a systems engineer, it's somebody that can come in and sit right beside you and say, let's write some of this code together and mm -hmm. let me show you how I would architect it. So then you can get some really deep expertise from my team and we're delighted to do it. We've got uh, a loft here in town. Yep. If you want to stop there. by the loft at any point in time, we hold office hours there and our essays are there and you can come in and you can ask any questions you want there. But if, if you got something that you feel like you need, you know, uh, you know, Jerry's got a team assigned to him. He can connect uh, my uh, VC team into yep. you. So there's a lot of paths forward just to get technical help as well. Let me ask you, so that's on, so there's, there's help on selling to customers, there's help on technical solutions to make yep. sure things work together. There's education stuff because you're launching 722 new features last yep. year alone to understand what's new because the, the, the playground's always Moving shifting. Kind of semi-facetiously, how do you want us to compete with Amazon, yeah. right? Because there's a bunch of startups out here that either both benefit being on Amazon, but quite frankly, may offer technology solutions that compete with some of the things that you offer. And I, I know that you probably just want to sell more Amazon, even though it means maybe not using Redshift, maybe using something else. But yeah, so, how, so how do you, I'll tell you how, what's the best way to compete with So we with have Amazon? a completely different philosophy than you might imagine okay. on this. So, uh, and this goes all the way back to Jeff in a decision probably in 99, where we learned something really important. So Jeff has this mantra that he, he talks about strategic focus. And Amazon's strategic focus is to be the most customer-obsessed company in the world. And so everything we do is to achieve that goal. Yeah. There's nobody that's asking about being the most profitable. There's nobody that's asking about being the most successful this quarter. None of that stuff matters if you're the most customer-obsessed, right? Um, and so... Early on in the development of Amazon, Amazon had its own products they were selling from their warehouses, but they also started offering things from everybody else's warehouses. You could just come in if you had some stuff, you could post it and you could sell it through Amazon. And they kept the websites mm -hmm. separate because some of the stuff, you know, Amazon had already paid for it sitting in their warehouses and some of the, some of the st stuff, it would be like they were yeah, competing. building completely yeah. competing. And he, he said, you know what, this is this needs to be changed. If we're truly customer obsessed, what we're doing is we're helping customers 
make decisions. We're not trying to sell something to customers. We're helping them make decisions. And so that's where we come from. We're delighted if you provide something that is completely competitive to us. In fact, we have uh, REM, our product, and we've got, you know, some of our biggest customers are Hadoop-based. Cloudera customers working on Amazon or Docker And we're delighted to support all of that because we feel like it's our job to help a customer make the decision. And if it's partially uh, AWS, partially our partners, we're delighted Okay. In Great. the end to have that because it's, it's, um, you won't build a long-term relationship with a customer if you come in and you're trying to force something on the customer that doesn't satisfy their needs. It's classic. Customers don't want to be sold to, right? They, right. they want to make decisions. I'm going to turn on to questions from the audience. I have a million other questions for Mike if no one does, but I, I, get, I get the sense there are probably a bunch of questions from the audience. Hey, Mike, uh, thank you for the insight. I'm ex-VMware, too. So at VMware, we often talk about a number about, like, you know, every VMware sales, there is a, you know, $1 sales, there is an $8, $9, $10 drag uh, of the ecosystem storage or whatnot, you name it. What's the equivalent picture on the AWS side? I'm curious, you know, what's your analysis? What's the insight on that? You know, every time a customer chooses to implement EC2, there's a lot of stuff that goes around that. I haven't, actually haven't done the analysis, yeah. but they have to deploy software on top of that because they're not going to spin up a, a server to do nothing with it. So there's got to be something that runs on top of that. There's oftentimes somebody that's there supporting that. So there's probably an SI that's implementing on top of that. There's also a new and emerging market around managed services. And so there's a bunch of our partners that have stood up managed services where they run those systems on behalf of the customers. So we got a whole new kind of born in the cloud movement around managed services in these. I haven't actually looked at at VMware. They, they you know, claimed it was between 1 to 10 and 1 to 12. I don't think it's that high here, but it's certainly a ratio because every cell, there's an it, off. It could be the subscription versus license, right? So you think of VMware's 1 to 12, a lot of the 12 was CapEx storage, for example. Yep, that's right. And so in, in Amazon, it might be 1 to 5, but the 5 is recurrent subscription. It could be with a lifetime longer. Interesting. Other questions? Typically with the paradox of choice, pricing is a critical vector. So there could be a situation where Amazon competes with an existing player on the marketplace, yep. severely undercuts on pricing, which could lead to the death of that particular participant in the marketplace. So how do you maintain that gentle balance between providing value to the participant in the marketplace and also conducting business? Yeah, so, um, so for me, you know, price isn't the driver, but business value is the driver, right? And so if you're creating significant business value, then price isn't going to go away. And and if you're creating unique business value, then you get a bigger piece. You can have a higher price, right? And that's kind of the core tenet of the technology business that we, you know, as a a community run in. Now, the reality is the cloud-based businesses are run at high-volume, low-margin businesses, right? That's just the nature of that part of the business. And so if you're planning to build infrastructure that's going to compete in a low-margin way, you're going to be prepared to have low margins. 
But if you're going to add unique business value on top of that, then you're going to be able to price to that value. And, and that's the way it makes sense to me. If your technology you're deploying is still within that low margin stack, you know, you've got to innovate above that and get some unique business value going. And, and you have to continue to innovate quickly, right? That's the reason why this notion of minimum viable product, continuous customer listening systems, and fast iteration, that's a recipe for success in, in this next technology transition, in my opinion. And if you're doing all three of those, you're going to cre be creating unique business value every day. And that's what's going to you know, defend your business model. That's great. So you made a comment about for new technology that uh, you need to light a lot of fires. And I saw a lot of people nodding and jotting that down. And I was just curious, as I've been thinking about that more, there's a lot of different ways you can do that. And so I'd just be curious to hear you extrapolate a little more about what you mean by it. Yeah, so I, what I really mean by, uh, in that context, a fire is an analogy to a project. And every project has a specific thing that's trying to get accomplished and a business value that they're expecting from it, right? And so what you want to be able to do is contextualize a project, which hopefully will be short-running and defends the value quickly, right? The faster the time to value, the better off you were. As an example, BEA's WebLogic, you could create a Java app inside of 30 days and you could be ready to deploy, right? And so you went from, gee, I wonder if this technology works to deploying a Java app in less than 30 days. That allows you to have a very rapid turnover of your selling motion. But it's, it's that project, a defined time frame, a very specific set of things you're trying to get accomplished and a recipe for accomplishing those that has a, a tight business value associated with it, right? Java app in less than 30 days. It, just, just that phrase compared <laughs> to 30 seconds to spin up a, like an EC2 like, uh, instance and launch some app uh, is amazing, just within the span of a few years. But like Java at 30 days, I'm like... I'm like and, and, you know, we've just come out with a new technology called Lambda, yeah. which Serve, now spins yeah. up servers in milliseconds. Yeah. And you're charged by the millisecond with Lambda. It's a whole new generation of compute that's going to fundamentally change the world because no longer are you committed making long-term commitments to compute like a whole hour long. Sure. Right? You can now make microsecond commitments to commute. It's just the world is moving so fast right now. It's stunning. So we're laughing at a Java app in three days. In two years, we're we'll laughing at a Lambda app in 30 milliseconds. Oh, God, I remember those days when it took you milliseconds. <laughs> Interesting. Other, other questions? I don't know how much more time we have. Um, maybe Sarah. Oh, we're good. Yeah. Front. <clears throat> two things. One, you never got to answer when you decide to fire a salesperson or how you decide, number one. And number two, how does one find someone like you early in your career? <laughs> <laughs> well, so... Um, the second question is you have to go out to a ranch in Idaho. <laughs> and that's where I came from. <laughs> I don't know that I would cold call ranches in Idaho, though. But what I do is I look at, you know, basic behaviors, right? What you want to do is you, you don't want to look at outcomes, focus on the outcomes. What you want to do is focus on the inputs, right? And so you look at the inputs and their ability to deliver on the inputs. 
And if they've got a, a unique ability to deliver on the inputs, then you have to recognize that, they're, and, they're, and they're not getting the outputs, there's one of two conclusions. One, you haven't given them enough time. Or two, the processes that you're using are, are bro- broken. broken down. It could be that you know, you're asking this 350-pound guy to go out for a pass. Hopefully you didn't do that. If you did, you got to recognize that uh, and make a change to your process. But more often what happens is, you know, there are five stages of the prospecting cycle, right? You know, the people that are really good at targeting, the thoughtful, let me go figure out not only which segment, which company, but the, yeah. the person may not be the best at picking up the phone and getting past the secretary or getting through the voicemail to the customer. Those are two different skill sets. And so what you may do is you may break those five steps down and you look across them and they just may be deficient in one of those steps. And all you have to do is give them, give them some coaching in that one step and you can save what could be a very valuable person. And so you think about each of those five steps as five different skills. Look at the characteristics of their delivery in each of the five skills compared to the average. Based upon that, coaching could end up saving that person. If it turns out, you know, they're deficient in too many skills and or they won't take coaching, that's when you have to say it's time to move on. But people oftentimes move too quickly or move for reasons that aren't data-driven. And all that does is create churn. Yeah, One of the first essays I worked with um, was marvelous at mapping out the org of any large company. Like you had the psychability to create this org chart, but to call, he was like, oh, no, I I don't don't do the calls. Sarah in the back. You talk about um, Lambda and three milliseconds of commitment, but how do, you, how do you talk to customers about the different commitment that is doing Lambda versus EC2 or S3 or services that kind of have an equivalent, right? How do you talk to them about lock-in? The funny thing is there's a lot of talk in the market today about lock-in, and I think it's probably because there are some people up and down the valley over the last 20 years <laughs> that have taken advantage of their technology to force customers to do things sure. that they simply don't find valuable, right? I don't know a single customer that isn't looking to flee Oracle simply because of the licensing kinds of models that they're using and the, they're forcing customers to do things that, you know, that, that aren't customer-obsessed, right? So those kinds of things have created this real high concern around lock-in. Now, you put an application in a Docker container on AWS, you can pick it up and put it right over there in your on-prem or in any other you know, cloud in a way that's dramatically simpler than anything that we're worried about in lock-in today. So we've got this world that we've been, we're, we're dealing with that has got us locked into things that we just don't like. But the world that we're going to, it's way more open, by far more open, yeah. by far. Now, you know, there's, there's going to be things that are unique and valuable that you're going to say, well, you know, I'm going to commit to this just because there's no technology that delivers anything like this, and I can create unique competitive advantage for my customers on this. And since it's the only thing that does it this way, I'm locked in, but there isn't any other choice. I mean, you know, and you're still going to build it because it will defend value for you in the marketplace. But the lock-in story is 
in my opinion, is kind of a hangover of the last 20 years of us not having, you know, containerization, microservice, all of the things that are really freeing us up to do things that we simply couldn't before. So Docker's the key to everything, apparently. According to Jerry, that's what he keeps telling me. Gets Twister, Docker, Docker, Docker. Uh, one more question. Okay, then maybe my last question for you, Mike, is the following. What are the two or three things, either technology or solutions, that you would like to see Silicon Valley build yeah. on Amazon? It could be a, the next great app, like, yeah. you know, Benny Off just put his IoT thing on your cloud, right? Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what are two or three things? Well, I get it. So there's, like? a, there's a couple of mega trends that are super interesting to me right now. We're calling it IoT, but it's not really sure. IoT because IoT doesn't really mean anything. But what the world is exploding mm -hmm. around sensors. And there's going to be sensor data that's going to change the world. We're working with John Deere to put IoT on their tractors, and we're going to be able to space the seeds out so that how far apart each seed is and the depth of it based upon the soil correct characteristics of that square inch. And by doing that, yeah. we're going to improve productivity of agricultural land today by 20%, which will feed the 9 billion people that are on Earth in 2050 without breaking out any new land. By the way, we're going to protect our most valuable resource on Earth, fresh water, by minimizing the amount of fresh water we need. And we're going to reduce runoff. So it's going to end up reducing pollution, and it's all coming from IoT. We're going to end up in a world of wearables where <laughs> we're working with a couple of major healthcare companies to help them build ICUs at home. Because if you're really sick, the last place you want to be is around a bunch of sick people, right? And with wearables at home, you can build an ICU in your own, uh, in your own uh, bedroom. And that's where you get better faster, right? We're headed to precision medicine that will be, do deep sequencing and we'll be able to track the early introduction of, you know, the four majors, right? Cancer lung disease, diabetes, and heart disease. You'll be able to see that in the sequence way earlier and be able to address it. All of this is coming about from IoT, yeah. so that whole place is going to explode. Associated with IoT, it's going to be an enormous amount of work around data. The amount of data that's going to be in the world tomorrow is going to be dramatically higher than it is today, and all of the tools that you need to be able to manage that data you know, they all have to mature. That's a whole new yeah. revolution yeah. that is, is just around the corner. All of our customers are seeking to migrate to the cloud. Any tool that helps them migrate to the cloud, you know, in a, in a reasonable fashion is super valuable today. Um, I've got customers. I, I have a customer that I was talking to yesterday, one of the largest utilities in the world, that's migrated 6,000 servers in five months. It's amazing. And, and it's just, it's you know, GE stood on stage and said they're moving 9,000 servers. Capital One stood on stage and said they're moving all of theirs, right? And, and so the, the reality is these enterprises are looking for tools that can facilitate kind of the next generation of IT and add value around that. So there's a few just mega trends occurring right now where the right investments with the right smart technology will end up delivering substantial value. Amazing. Well, the last thing I want to say is um, thank you very much for the time, Mike. Mike is uh, both a 
cowboy. He literally is a, a cowboy, and he's also a philanthropist. He's got a foundation nonprofit at Stanford Hospital um, focused on cancer research. Mm-hmm. So if there is a way you guys want to get closer to Amazon and through Mike, it's, that's a great way to do it because he, he and I share this interest around using technology for, for solving things like that. Anyway, Absolutely. Mike, thank you very much for today. Certainly, my Appreciate pleasure. It.